Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is Keith Holdridge, CEO and founder of KO Consulting and former CEO of Swan Communications, which was sold over $100 million and is also the drummer of the Band in the Boardroom, which was a finalist at the Best Corporate Band for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Welcome, Keith. How are you? Good, Rishi. Looks like you've had a cup of coffee this morning. Uh, yes, I have. Um, uh, so I love, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. I'd like to just get into kind of discussing uh, a bit of your backstory and kind of where your journey began. So maybe if you could start where your entrepreneurial journey started to, 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 to your current, current role. Well, you can tell by the accent, I'm a southerner, a lot further south than normal. I come from born in England, grew up in Australia. So the corporate journey actually started in Australia, uh, I started in uh, accounting, went to marketing, into sales, uh, and then I started in the advertising and recording industry, uh, a very much like your K-Tel that was out here in America, taking mm-hmm. well-known personalities and hoping they could bloody sing and then recording a record for them. Uh, so that led me to a lot of chances to meet a lot of very interesting characters. And one of them was David Swan I met in the seventies and he had a, a company in electronics, which I knew nothing about, but it was the same principles applied mm-hmm. and we got together and within a year we were partners and we sold, it became the 10th largest switch company in the world with operations mm-hmm. in Singapore, England, New Zealand, Australia. And I started the operations in America. Uh, then I worked for the public company that bought us for maybe eight, nine years as the international director of operations, which basically meant I would turn up at your uh, operation and work out what was needed to be improved. If I needed to sell it, hire new management, reorganize the company in a different manner. Uh, that was a very interesting, most probably the most rewarding job I've ever had because you were, you were always trying to fix something and not just take over someone else's portfolio and mm-hmm. further enhance it. So that gave me a heck of a training in uh, balance sheet management, profit and loss management and cash flow management, and all the people skills needed because you weren't in there for three or four or five years, you were in there for six months to a year. And you had to get a team together, remold the team, re-energize the team, re-motivate the team, make sure they had a clear focus. And that, is I think where you learn a lot of chops on how to get it done quickly, efficiently, and uh, effectively because you don't have a second chance. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up in America. Uh, um, David and I started the Swan Group in 1987. 
and we got into security by accident. It was never designed. It was just, a, you know, we, we saw, I thought he was mad. And the first item we had was a $600 pen that had a camera in it. And I thought, this is never going to work. And a couple of hundred million dollars in sales a year later for the group, it was working very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so I might not always pick the right product, but I know how to market them and get the companies going. Oh, he, was good at the pro he was good at the product. That's yeah, I mean, that's always a two-tag-team combination, mm -hmm. right, to, to have success. Um, I'd like to start back. I'd like to take it back to the very beginning. You're mm -hmm. getting into the record industry. What drove you to take that leap and kind of start, start your own company? Well, I was a drummer. I've always been a drummer. And uh, I think you mentioned in your uh, opening presentation that uh, mm -hmm. I was a member of, of a band called Band from the Boardroom. And that's a band made up of industry professionals for the consumer electronics industry that gets together once a year at CES in Las Vegas and jams and performs. And, you know, we're actually a lot of good musicians in it that have you know left the industry and like to do it for fun. Um, so when I was a drummer, there's not a lot of money in it being a musician and I thought well there's got to be more money in marketing and selling and so I went to work for a little private company and learned the trade of making commercials and uh, advertising and doing royalty deals with the television stations all over Australia so you'd release a record in one market when it's finished there you'd get all the returns everything was on sale of return and then you'd move it to another market and you'd, man, uh, you'd market the product for six to eight weeks and then just move it around the country until there was nothing left, hopefully. And, you know, records are like people. They're either going to be a hit or they're not going to be a hit. Yeah. And uh, you've, got to, you've got to put them out there and just win the percentages. And the percentages are not everyone's going to be a, a winner. But if you get enough winners mm -hmm. to... Uh, overtake the returns you're getting and moving to another market as long as you've got enough going at once and have four to six programs going around the country at one stage you can make a good money out of it and so i was approached by a, a company that had its own television sh show and like your uh, disney kids channels that had mm -hmm. kids from eight to 16 and it was called young talent time in australia and uh, the compare was an ex-pop star called johnny young fantastic bloke and his general manager Neville Kent and myself formed a company uh, called Pisces Records and he had a lot of kids that have been through his training and uh, ended up the Britney Spears and uh, you know the, the pop singers of your day here in America were the pop singers of our day in Australia and we did the records for them so they you know they were with us as kids and once they left they were with us in our record company as adults so it was quite successful and uh, then I got uh, drawn away from that into general business in, with David Swan. He met me through a, a, a mutual friend and, and said, look, I need someone to help me with marketing and advertising in my electronics business. And I thought, well, this will be a, a good experience. So I tackled that. But the early years were all about uh, the trial and error of putting stuff in, on, uh, on television and seeing if it worked. And not all of them worked, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned that you 
you went and learned from somebody else before you started it. So would you, anybody else that's aspiring to one day be an entrepreneur, maybe have some key executive roles, was that something you'd recommend them? Is that's Abs it? Absolutely. I, I have two or three mentors in my life. And the first one was a, a man, you know, he's, uh, he was older than I am, which is saying something, because not many older than me these days. But uh, Sino Gazzardi, he'd been a writer at, at the pop magazine in Australia called GoSet. He knew all the players from, you know, little rubber band people to all the famous acts and artists in Australia. And he started his own record company in the back of a, a lawyer or solicitor's office in uh, Richmond in the suburb of Melbourne. And my mother-in-law at the time was the record buyer for Kmart in Australia. She was the national record buyer. And you know, I was a young musician and pretty well known in some circles. And she said, you've got two choices right now. You can go and join this uh, upstart company called Hamard Records that only had had one album out and they've been quite successful. Or you can go into EMI and be a number in a big cog. And I decided to go and learn my trade from somebody that was learning the trade at the same time. He didn't have all the answers, but he knew what the questions were. And I didn't even know what the questions were at that time. And uh, his mentoring was incredible. And having a memory for names, faces and, and people, because every business other than the real estate business to me is a people business. Every, you know, if you want to be in real estate, you don't have to be personable. I mean, you just got to sell real estate. But if you want to be in any sort of marketing, selling, branding type company in the world, you've got to be good with people. And this guy taught me how to be really good with people. Yeah, it's a valuable, very valuable skill. I'm sure it's translated in other areas of your life as well, um, beyond just business. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in community service, in my church uh, environment, it's always allowed me to be someone, you know, and I, I will give the accent a bit of credit over here in America. I'm a little bit different mm -hmm. uh, than back home. I'm just another bloody Aussie like the rest of them. Uh, and it does help. But yeah having that ability to communicate with all facets of your life, uh, your home life, your family life, your, your social life, uh, as well as your business life uh, and stand out and be, don't over talk. Mm -hmm. and, and the best part of speaking is listening. On my Skype, it says you can never, if you look up me in Skype and do a Skype conversation, my little banner just says you can't take any words you've said back. Mm -hmm. ever and in this modern day of social media you know it to be true yeah absolutely and we absolutely. won't get into politics we'll just move on yeah uh so another passion of yours you mentioned a couple of times and i mentioned it also in the intro um is is drumming so what drew you to be drumming and how is that passion translated to other areas of your life my father was a drummer a drummer in the army in england uh, that's where I was born and we immigrated to Australia when I was quite young and dad was a drummer in the uh, military so he was in the marching band and all and so he would teach me little rhythms when I was three or four or five and by the time I was five I knew I was going to be a drummer I knew that was what I wanted to do um, and so advice for anybody there's nothing better than the skills of the technical side of anything we do 
be it accounting, marketing, uh, new product development, product marketing, whatever we're into. And I only wish that I'd done uh, the right thing by myself and the musicians around me and studied the, the, my craft. I was just one of the guys that thought I knew everything. Uh, people that know me will say I haven't changed. But uh, I took one drum lesson and thought, well, that's it. I'm done. I don't need to learn anymore. And I wish I had of. Yeah. Uh, because I think I could have got a lot. I, I've got more out of it than I've ever put into it. Uh, I've been very lucky to play with bands all over the world and uh, still play with bands all over the world and a lot of great musicians. And I've always ascertained that if I'd have studied properly, I would have, you know, got a lot more out of it myself instead of, you know, my, my limitations are there, but you know, I, I, I can play. Mm-hmm. And I, I get to play with brilliant musicians, which only makes you better. Yeah. And it's like in business and equating music to business. If you go and play with a bunch of really good musicians, you're going to sound really cool, no matter what, how bad you are. And if you go to work with a whole bunch of rat bags, you're going to be a bad businessman. Mm-hmm. But if you go to be, uh, into business and manage businesses with the right people, that's what's going to make you successful. I don't mm-hmm. care what business you're in. I don't care how you manage your business. Unless you can get the people behind you all on the same page and have transparency in what you do. And that's the same in music. If, if they look over, especially the drummer, and he doesn't know where he's going, they're all going to fall off a cliff. And if you're leading a team in business and you don't know what you're going to do when you turn up to work, they're going to fall over a cliff. So they quite closely relate. Um, not like my golf game. That doesn't relate at all. Or that's my addiction is golf. Mm-hmm. My passion's music. My uh, work is my vocation. And my life is my family. That's something you haven't heard before, have you? No. Of course no. you have. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for going into that and describing that and so like you said it's about the people you surround yourself so mm-hmm. you know anybody that's starting um, a company or their company's just starting to come 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 about um, they're looking at hiring more and more employees and so you've had decades of experience of hiring various people so I'd like to understand what what you would say is the number one thing that that goes into hiring somebody um, or looking for a potential cultural fit within your organization? I don't think, I think it's horses for courses during certain periods of the growth of let's just take the Swan group of companies all over the world (laughs) from 1987 till we sold it in 2015. um, At different stages, we needed different types of people and a different mix of people and a different uh, people with different skill sets. Mm-hmm. But the common theme was teamwork. You know, that was the common theme. But as it developed into a more sophisticated business, we needed more sophisticated uh, team members to join us, but still have the same mantra that we had, still have the same philosophy we had and transparency we had. But you, just, you needed to add the nuts and bolts into it that understood the mechanics of high-level uh, software, high-level uh, IT integration. That, you know, as a family business, we didn't quite understand, so we just had to get that into it. But as long as they understood what our philosophy was, and a lot of them didn't agree with it half the time. Yeah. Uh, they could never come back and say we were we were not transparent. That we 
didn't tell them what our goal was. We didn't tell them what the aim was. We didn't tell them what the philosophy was. So when we were hiring people, we were hiring for that point in the hockey stick that we were at and what it was going to do to take us to the next level, as long as they fitted culturally. And if they didn't, one of the things I'm very proud of is recognizing and doing something about it quite humanely. It wasn't pointed. It wasn't, you know, vindictive or anything like that. It was just, this is not the right fit. Be it the one in a hundred times that we didn't have the fit. We, we, we didn't let it uh, affect the rest of the company. And so I would say when I'm looking, it depends on the growth. If you're a startup, you've got, to believe, you've got to hire people that are willing to go that extra mile. Mm-hmm. And if you're a, you know, like we were a two, $250 million a year company at the end in sales, you can't have everybody doing what we did when there was 20 of us. Yep. You, it's just impossible. So you've got to have a transition from the startup company where you work 20 hours a day, you don't sleep, you sleep with your phone next to your ear, and then when you get to the 200, 250 million, yeah, at, at the senior level, you still do the same thing. But at all aspects of the business have to operate so that it accommodates the needs of the, the, the staff and the needs of the people getting into the next level. So what I always look for was, was you know, people who could fit into that growth pattern that we were on from a startup to, you know, quarter of a billion dollar company and they would in in year five it's always different than year 15 and year 15 it's different to year 25 i was with swan the last incarnation of swan for over 30 years and Mm -hmm. 15 or 20 of it roughly uh, as an executive director and the rest as a a vice chairman of the board Mm -hmm. but you know you would always look for that that you needed to get you and i wouldn't look at any further than two years out. Because I think if you're doing that, you, you don't, as a, if you're managing a football team, I don't care what code it is, be it rugby, Australian rules, or gridiron, as we call it, American foot, football, you've got to put the right people on the field at that point in, in the mixture of what you're doing mm-hmm. to win the Super Bowl. And I always, you've been with companies of, uh, uh, been around and yep. you've seen what I say and what I always said was I want us to make the playoffs every year we're not going to win the Super Bowl every year be nice but we're not going to do it as long as we're in the playoffs we've managed the business properly and we've taken it through that current uh, growth spurt hopefully that we were going for so the people and team members that we would want to attract had to be uh, committed to that segment of the journey not the end journey, not the beginning journey, that segment of the journey that we were on at that stage to make it successful. And then you have to chop it up and do it all over again for the next stage. Thank you for going into detail about that. So you mentioned several times getting the right fit, getting the right cultural fit. Yeah. But how do you, how do you go about creating that culture? Like, well, how do you sustain that? How do you go about building it? What are kind of the tools yeah, yeah. or things you look to do? Well, when you're a startup or a young, aggressive company, that's what you, as a team leader, as a business leader, as somebody that has your vision, you've got to be able to sell that to your, to your team. And anyone joining you, 
they better drink the Kool-Aid as well. You're going to have a dead weight in your team. Doesn't matter, you know, how good they are or what you thought they were going to be able to contribute. You can't, you don't have enough time in a startup company to cover for them. So you've got to look for their (coughs) ability to identify what you see as the vision. I find a lot of companies spend too much time writing a mission statement and a vision statement. They spend an enormous amount of time doing it. It's crazy. (coughs) Excuse me. And Mm -hmm. the reason I think it's nuts is if it's taken you as a business team leader that much time to articulate what your goals and the vision for your business is, how the heck do you think the the team members are going to be trying to interpret it? Yep. They're not, it's not going to work. So you've got to have a clear understanding of, of that journey and how long it's going to take and what level on the journey you are to attract the right people at the right space in time. Because some people I've said no to because they were not ready for what we were doing or we were not ready for their capabilities at that point of time. It would have been you know, a waste of a great resource that we could use later. Mm-hmm. So I think good leaders have got to recognize where you are in the journey and what you need and try and attract the talent to fit. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's words of wisdom for sure. Um, so I'd like to go into, you mentioned earlier how valuable it was in regards to your relationship building and that, that skill. Uh, I just want to say if you could give some tips on how to go about that or some things that you learned from your mentor on, you know, how to incorporate that into their career, you know, other aspects of their life, that skill. Well, a lot of it's to do with <coughs> excuse me, your natural communication skills. If you're going to be a good visionary leader of any type of business, you, you've got to be able to, as I said before, articulate that vision and get everybody on the same page. And what you need to do is make sure they've drunk the Kool-Aid. And you've got to take the time to ask them. Too many business leaders, and especially startups, don't have the time to ask, do you understand what we're trying to do? Have we made it clear enough? Have we guided you along to where you know where you're going to be? And I would rather have, here's what I used to do a lot when Swarm was getting too big to be involved in everything. Mm-hmm. I, for a senior position, <coughs> I would work with HR and select five to six final candidates for a position. Mm -hmm. And then we would get it down through the HR process and the team process to the last two or three. And because I thought you're going to have to work in product with the product team or marketing with the marketing team or accounting with the accounting team, I would pick a bunch of peers in that group and say, look, we've got to the last three, you pick it. And I would let them pick. I would let them go to lunch or dinner or whatever, or travel to Australia, whatever it took, so that they felt empowered that it wasn't just the boss's decision, it was their decision. And if they cocked it up, they cocked it up and they had to wear it Mm -hmm. and they had to live with it. So they made it work. 
And it wasn't a popularity contest. It was what is best to fill the role and do the, def you know, all jobs had a de definition. All jobs had a KPI and a job description and a, a, a matrix to benchmark it and a reporting system to review it every six months. If you don't do that, you're, you're telling your team that anything goes and you're not going to be held accountable to anything. As long as you do the review process and get the right people in, 95% of the time you'll be okay. That's, that's sage advice. That's very sage <laughs> advice. So uh, I'd like to just ask you if there's any particular resources, books um, that made you a better leader as you uh, were scaling all these companies you were been a part of? Well, on books, at uh, Swan for the last 15 years, we would have worldwide the same book. As we were going through the growth stages, one year I picked the energy bus. So everybody in England, Australia, China, America, everyone, all had to read the energy bus. A year later, it was, and that was because we were, you know, needing that extra effort to get us across the line for the goals that we'd set. Mm -hmm. Then I picked good to great. Um, I, I always picked a book that reflected our part of the journey. And I worked with HR to research it. The other thing I did was in developing a aptitude test with a HR consultant mm -hmm. and his company on a worldwide basis for certain senior positions, we would give them this test that would try to reflect our culture as best possible. Mm -hmm. we, I, I, as far as I was concerned, if they're in the running for the position, they'd have to be qualified. Otherwise we're wasting our bloody time. Mm -hmm. So if they're qualified, what leaves it as the last decision making part of the process is, do they fit our culture? So I paid for a guide to research what our culture was. And every three to four years, we'd go back to the drawing board and redefine our culture and mm -hmm. then specifically apply this test and, and redefine the test that they would take. Look, it wasn't infallible, but it did help us weed out those that didn't have the same thought process as we did. Okay. I found that very helpful. So it was like that adage, trust but verify, but with both quality and and quantity because yeah. you are testing it with quantitative metrics and with the qualitative Correct. how they're fitting it and okay. and all you're doing is just lessen your chances to make a mistake and that you know if you're putting the marketing campaign out if you're doing your uh consumer research through um focus groups etc it's all the same thing hiring the staff is exactly the same process as marketing accounting anything else you've got to treat it as such mm -hmm. a lot of young especially young business leaders starting don't give enough emphasis to the hr they always have hr as a part of accounting i find that ridiculous yeah. hr should have nothing to do with accounting and you know it should be so far removed it should be in different buildings and there's a reason for that hr has to interpret as a business leader what your values are what your philosophy is what your mission what your vision is and make sure the culture of the business accommodates that that's like asking the marketing director to do all the accounting work that's ridiculous yeah absolutely
absolutely. Um, and I think that's very well suited for today's business environment as a lot of the millennial and Gen Zs coming into the space. They're choosing culture over financial metrics many of the time because you know they want to make sure that they're feeling needed, they're feeling close to the business. So I think that's a especially a great advice for the current climate. Yeah, because they jump and ship at the drop of a hat because of the environment we live in in America with, with you know, 3.6% unemployment and, uh, you know, workforce added today. The numbers come out at 225,000 new jobs added. So they can jump around as much as they like yeah. because we need them. And yeah. so if you, you give them what they want as well as what you need, everybody wins. <laughs> if you don't treat them right, they're not going to be there next month. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're, they're, they're about... As you said, they're not there for the paycheck. They're there for the experience. The, 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 so show them what the vision for them is as well as the business you're operating. And they, if they you know, drink the Kool-Aid, you've got somebody that's loyal and or serve you brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So of all the books that you did, you said you had a book every year with the company. Is there Was there one particular book that, kind of you saw the the most improvement or the most adoption or people were the most excited about um, after they read it? I, I think the energy bus was the one that did that through the rank and file and, you know, from supervisors to middle managers to senior managers. Mm-hmm. And the other one, as you were going up the second or third year in the hockey stick in any environment, Oh, I always found teaching the elephant to dance. And that's about taking that next step when you're going from a small, medium-sized business to a large business uh, and, and what the challenges are. Because it puts you all on the same footing and, and it's a storytelling. Teach, uh, teaching the elephant to dance is a great book uh, of anyone that's reached that mid-cap level and looking to go the next stage for, as uh, questions, how we're going to get there and how am I going to have everybody on the same page? That's yep. the book I would recommend. I think that's great advice, and I'm sure the audience will um, go out and purchase those books. Um, so I'd like to just get into the final question. So we like to discuss the habits, routines, rituals of you know, change makers like yourself out there. Um, so are there any particular routines or rituals or habits that you're quite religious about just doing on a regular basis because it helps you optimize the day? Um, I take the lead of my wife of all things. Um, don't tell her that, uh, but she's an early bird. She's up at four thirty, quarter to five. And because she wants to work out before seven, uh, you know, we, we're very early to bed mm-hmm. and we're very early to rise because then we can maximize our day. I would rather get that project that, you know, I'm an Excel nut. I love working on Excel or mm-hmm. any computer files, as you know, uh, and I'd rather get that done with a cup of coffee in my hand before I'm interrupted with a bunch of people or a million phone calls or podcasts or whatever I'm doing, uh, and get it where, when it's fresh in the morning. So my, our, and I say our, not only mine, but our routine is very up early every morning. And by seven we've, you know, we've accomplished all those things that we thought we were going to get done, but normally don't. And we try to 
including working out, including having a cup of coffee and a chat. And my wife reads the Bible every morning and mm -hmm. studies verse. And I get on my computer and do my computer work. Mm -hmm. And we've found that that routine, it may mean that at nine or 9.30, we're, we're a, a little fatigued or tired, but we're fine. We're non-drinkers. We, you know, we don't drink a lot of alcohol or anything like that. So it's, it's fine for us to do that. So I think it's, and, and of all things, a lot of water. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we drink at least six or seven of those big bottles of water a day. Mm -hmm. Because you know, everything else will uh, affect you in some shape or form, but yep. water goes straight through you and a cleansing mechanism for your brain as well as your body. Yeah, absolutely. Hydration is yeah. very important. Very important. Especially if you're taking long flights like I do all the time to Australia or England or China, like you do. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't drink on the flight, you're going to feel buggered for a couple of days. And if you drink a lot, it'll make you feel a bit better. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of our routine. It's just hydration, hydration, hydration. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've obviously been involved with various different industries and many different categories um, of business. Is there one particular thing uh, that you find as a myth that you'd like to debunk that, you know, people talk about all the time, but is not true? I just don't think that anyone has all the answers. I, I, I think that it takes a lot of us to achieve any common result. And there are people I would follow for no pay. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you who they are later. But I think it's got to be recognized that leadership isn't dictatorial. Leadership has to be a consensus driven management form because if you're dictatorial, I just don't think you can get everyone's input. And, and that's where I think people who see a dictatorial boss will only follow on when it suits their purpose. Mm -hmm but not beyond. If they see an inclusive, all incumbent team leader, they'll follow on when it isn't beneficial to them. They'll follow on if they see the vision and it's not you know, just a top-down thing. They felt involved, they feel. So I think the, the myth that strong leadership equaling dictatorial leadership is a good thing. I just don't think it is. I think, I, I think it's a myth. I think you, know, you can be a strong leader a decisive leader, but unless you get everybody in, you're nothing but a dictator with a title. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, totally agree with that. Um, so, just have two final questions. So, mm -hmm. what does personal care mean to you? Um, if you could go ahead and answer that. Well, I'm going to ask you what it means. What, what do you mean by personal care? Yeah, I wash. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, so personal care can have a variety of different. Uh, well, I take meetings. it from a health standpoint. I think, you know, one of the things that I made sure in every company that I ran that health insurance was available and paid for by the business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're meaning personal care in that manner, I'm a strong advocate. And you know, you know, personally what I've been through a lot of things. Yep. But, uh, I just think it's imperative in any business to have a relationship with your staff on a personal level so that you understand what their needs are 
and I saw in some of your business relationships and your family business relationships exactly that. Yeah. And and it was so refreshing and caring for me to observe that it was brilliant. And yeah. I think they're the sort of things you've got to recognize that, yeah, you might be a, a, a business that can't afford 100% contribution, but even if you can afford X, that's better and they'll, they'll you know, they'll re- reward you in other ways. They'll co- be uh, committed to you. But their personal well-being of the, of the team members in, in your, your environment, in your orbit, is so important that they feel uh, that their well-being is part of your um, business philosophy, then they'll do anything for you, you know, because you've looked, you've, I just remember simple things like sending people home at four o'clock because their kids were coming home early. And they, you know, it was, it was something so simple as that is caring that you'd be home for their, you know, they'd be home for their kids and leave work an hour and a half early with no retribution and pay them for it. It was, yeah. it, it was fantastic. And I think they're the sort of things that I, I, I really believe businesses have to attend to and make it a matter of uh, of routine and principle because if you just add it to your list of to-dos because you think the the staff are going to need it, you're not, you haven't bought into it. You're not hundred percent committed. And unless you're hundred percent committed, it's going to reflect badly in the end, but you've got to want the best for the people that work with you and for you. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, final question: If you were to have a a dinner party or host a dinner, mm-hmm. uh, and you could have three people, anybody you chose, dead or alive, um, who would you choose and why? Well, there's, there's. I said that people that I would love to have worked for, and uh, Jack Welsh was one. I because I went through the Six Sigma training in uh, working with Home Depot, and you know being one of their vendors for many years and a company I was a partner in, uh, the largest fireplace mantle company in the world was Foster Mantles and Woodmaster Design out of Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in that business, which I had no right to be involved because I'm not very good handyman or any of that, but they just needed someone with the relationships with the, with the customer base and I had that. And so I ended up in this business and I, I had to go through Six Sigma training. I'd been through the Motorola quality assurance training in the mid 80s in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Illinois, in Schomburg, for a group I was working for. But the Six Sigma training, I learned a lot about Jack Walsh. And because uh, it was one of his lieutenants uh, who, who came to Home Depot to run it, I, I think he was. You know, a, a bad manager, but he brought some good philosophies. So Jack Welsh was somebody that uh, I really, really respected. And because he went more into uh, the relationship between management and staff, all the time was his philosophy that as long as they understood, you could help them and they could help you. And that's why I think, you know, to me, Jack Welsh was one of them. Not my first, you know, he'd be number three. Um, number two would be Churchill. I think we'd all be speaking German and Japanese if it wasn't for Winston Churchill last century. Mm-hmm. And it's just, he's my man for the you know, 1900s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the 20th century. He, he to me, 
was the epitome of a leader. He was mm-hmm. as mad, mad as a March Hatter, but I would have, you know, just learning and reading, watching movies. I've got all these writings in my library. I've read every book ever written by him or about him, most probably. And I just find him fascinating. And I just think he was the difference between uh, Hitler winning and, and the Western world losing. Uh, you know, it was just, I just think it was his ability to motivate people and be ruthless. He was ruthless. He, he would do things that, you know, if you reflect today, you'd go, geez, that, you know, that's bad. But he did it in the best in interest of the overall humanity and, and uh, you know, the, the British Commonwealth and all that. And he did it with only one outcome in mind, and that was to defeat Nazism and Hitler. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that, uh, you know, he is somebody, any business leader could learn. Just read his books. You'll learn yeah. to, to lead people and be accountable. So here's my number two, and number one is Jesus. Uh, and that's because I'm a person of faith and uh, was brought up in a, a, a very scholarly environment in my home church mm-hmm. was all about studying and uh, trying to understand. I find, you know, studying the Bible to be a great history lesson. And I take it from the theology side more than the uh, enforcement side. I'm not one for a lot of trinkets and, you know, holy water and all that. I'm just one that believes in the spirit of it all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I'd love to have a dinner with Jesus. Those are some great choices. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you here. Um, if anybody wanted to reach out or connect with you, is there some place online that they can contact you? Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm in LinkedIn and, and all other business references, or they could contact you. You can, you've always got a direct line to me. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much, and uh, it's a pleasure having you. Goodbye. Thanks a lot, Rishi. Take care.